This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. This episode is part of a long series exploring the rise of Christian fundamentalism in the United States. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back to the beginning of Season 5. One can imagine W.R. Alexander sitting down to write, so moved by recent events that he just had to say his piece. He was out of work, having formerly been a printer. Times were hard. Things were so tight that he had to take, with permission, a piece of paper from the local funeral parlor just to write his letter. The name of the funeral parlor was at the top of the page. Don't infer from this letterhead that I think you are dead. A good line for a man in a tight spot. After the failed campaign of William Jennings Bryan against William McKinley in 1896, Alexander put away the ribbon he'd worn in support of the Democrat. His wife pressed it in the family Bible. The random page she'd chosen for the task was Psalm 37. One Alexander saw fitting. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be envious against the workers of iniquity, for they soon shall be cut down like the grass, and wither as the green herb. Alexander was not alone in his correspondence. Many people wrote to William Jennings Bryan, literally thousands of people, to say that though their righteous cause was defeated, they should not be troubled long. Bryan was more than just the failed Democratic candidate for president, something more akin to a prophet of God, at least to his supporters. The late 1800s were a time of mass corruption, opportunism, growing war concerns, racism, and rapid modernization. Is it any wonder that with all that turmoil, that the seeds of fundamentalism were sown as people pined for the good old days? For many, their hope of the future lay in one man, William Jennings Bryan. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. A few months ago, I had the pleasure of interviewing Michael Kazin. He's a professor of history at Georgetown University and the author of A Godly Hero, a biography of William Jennings Bryan. He has a new book out this year called What It Took to Win, which is a history of the Democratic Party. For the interview, I asked him what got him interested in William Jennings Bryan. Well, I wrote a book about 10 years before about populism in American politics, both on the right and the left and otherwise. And of course, the word populism uh, for historians is uh, often connected very closely with Bryan. And also, he's considered very often to be a populist with a small P, even, even though he was never a populist with a capital P. He was always a, a Democrat in terms of his party affiliation. In the late 1800s, it wasn't just Republicans and Democrats. There were several other parties, the biggest of which was the populists. That's what Michael Kazin means by an uppercase P populist. Brian was of a different party, the Democrats. But by the end of his first presidential campaign, he'd somehow find a way to merge the two parties and begin the transformation of the Democrats from conservative to liberal. I was also very interested in the connection between religion and politics at that time, late 19th, early 20th centuries, when 
most Americans uh, were Protestants and also were pretty religious. And often the only book ordinary people had in their house was uh, with the King James Bible. Brian often blended religion and politics, framing his stances not just as a way to help people, but also as a moral crusade, one aimed at uplifting the little guy. Okay, so Brian was a lowercase p populist. We should probably ask, what is a populist? Well, it's what philosophers call an essentially contested concept, that populism. That is, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of different definitions of it. My definition is it's a political language. It's a way of saying you're on the side of the ordinary, hardworking, often God-fearing, uh, patriotic people against a elite, cultural elite, economic elite, political elite, uh, sometimes all three, sometimes only one, which you accuse of betraying the interests of the of ordinary people. And so it's, it's a way of talking about the opposition between ordinary people uh, who are trying to mobilize themselves against an elite, which is betraying their interests, which is take, taking away their liberties, and so forth. Populism isn't just a thing from the 1800s. We've got plenty of them now. So let's do a little quiz. I'll play an audio clip from a recent politician, and you tell me if they're a populist. I will be offering an amendment to raise the federal minimum wage from $7.25 an hour, which I believe is a starvation wage, to $15 an hour over a five-year period. Five years. That is Bernie Sanders talking about raising the minimum wage to $15 over the course of five years. What do you think? Is Bernie Sanders a populist? Yes, he's a populist. He campaigned against big business and for things like health care for all, not to mention raising the minimum wage, stuff aimed at normal people and not the elites. Okay, so here's another one. And because enough people got involved in this fight, we won. We got a good, strong Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. We got it passed through Congress, signed into law. That clip is from a speech given by a Senator Elizabeth Warren talking about how everyday people called for regulation of big banks. Where do you land on this one? She, too, is a populist. Actually, this speech was recorded at a conference advocating for a new kind of populism. So, yeah, dead giveaway, right? Now, what about... With the help of Iowa farmers, we became energy independent for the first time ever, ever. They say 75 years, ever. And America was respected again and respected like we have never been respected before. That, of course, is former President Donald Trump talking at a rally about ethanol, farmers, and energy independence. Is he a populist? That's right. All three of these politicians can be considered populists. Many of Trump's speeches target elites, insiders, and creating jobs for laborers in fields like mining and extraction. According to Michael Kazin, all three politicians, though really different from each other, can be considered populists. When we refer to populism in public discourse, though, it's often used as a slight against someone. I asked Kazin if he thinks populism 
is necessarily a bad thing. Populism is, as a form of protest, as a way of mobilizing people against the 1%, can have a very positive impact, I think, because after all, people who are in authority, whether appointed authority or self-appointed or even elected, you know, usually do fall short of their promises. And populism also often is a way of mobilizing people to try to put pressure on those in authority to live up to their promises. So I think it's a very important way of, uh, in the U.S. especially, of, of, of getting people in authority to live up to the ideals of the United States, which are wonderful ideals, though democracy with a small d and, uh, and equality. According to Kazin, populism's potential is in its ability to keep those in high positions accountable. I should clarify that populism doesn't have to. Donald Trump, for example, was not against the 1%, but trumpeted how much he wanted to protect wealth for those at the top, while also creating opportunities for those at the bottom, where Warren and Sanders advocated taxing the rich to uplift the poor. So populism comes in all shapes, sizes, and genders. In her survey of United States history, historian Jill Lepore opens her section on populism with the story of Mary E. Lease. Here is an actor reading one of her speeches. There is something radically wrong in the affairs of this nation. We have reached a crisis in the affairs of this nation, which is of more importance, more fraught with mighty consequence for the weal and woe of the American people than was even that crisis that engaged the attention of the people of this nation in the dark and bleeding years of civil strife. Lise was a tall woman, almost six feet high. One nasty journalist described her as tall and raw-boned, as ugly as a mud hen though she is said to have had a lovely voice. She crisscrossed the nation, masterfully delivering speeches wherever she went to spellbound crowds. Lise was most definitely a populist, a celebrity of sorts in the People's Party, also known as, da-da-da, the Populist Party. It was her belief that after the Civil War, the federal government conspired with big corporations and bankers. This was not an idea of her own. As I've said in other episodes, the late 1800s were marked by financial ruin. People went looking for reasons why. Sometimes they leaned on trusty scapegoats like immigrants and minorities. Like Sarah Emery and her book, Seven Financial Conspiracies Which Have Enslaved the American People, that blamed the difficulties of the era on Jewish bankers. That ugly standby has not gone away. Unfortunately, we'll be tracking it throughout this season. Normal people feared that all of this was happening in order to take power from common folks, especially farmers. Thomas Jefferson held up the ideal American as one who stayed on a small family farm. To populists like Lease at the end of the 1800s, the Jeffersonian ideal seemed under attack. As the nation spread west, Americans held up hope of building new lives for themselves. The Homestead Act gave people willing to meet the right qualifications a chance at 160 acres. The trouble is that much of the land reserved for normal folks was semi-arid, especially in the Great Basin. That includes parts of Wyoming, Idaho, Utah, Oregon, and California. Mary and her husband saw the troubles firsthand, they moved to Kingman, Kansas to take part in the Homestead Act. But the cost of proving up the land was too much, and the bank repossessed. You can see why she sided with farmers. But that's just one anecdote, though. The problem was a lot bigger than Mary and her family. 
Between 1889 and 1893, just four years, so many mortgages were foreclosed on that 90% of all farmland went into the possession of the banks. Can you see why people hated the banks? Meanwhile, Congress reserved prime real estate for railroads and commercial farmers. Within just 10 years, Congress granted more than 100 million acres of public land to railroad companies. Railroads, of course, were seen as a fast way to open up the West, and they were. It was seen as in the national interest to get them built in order to settle and occupy the territory that once belonged to native peoples. Okay, so they used public land, so one would expect that the rail lines would have to operate as utilities, like, you know, the power and water companies, giving the same prices to everyone. No. Railroads were privately owned and often discriminated against small organizations in favor of large manufacturers. Standard Oil is a prime example. It was the Behemoth Petroleum Trust owned by John D. Rockefeller, and through him, they brokered special contracts. They strong-armed exclusive discounts from the railroads. In return, Rockefeller gave them a steady and profitable stream of tankers to be hauled. But there was a catch. The railroads couldn't give those same discounts to his competitors. Rail magnates assisted monopolies while squashing healthy competition, all on land granted by the U.S. government. Rockefeller and others used the railroads to block out competition, meaning Standard Oil's products were cheaper to the public and more profitable than their competitors. I did a few episodes about Rockefeller in Season 2. He was, well, ruthless. For example, he made it too expensive for his competitors to use the railroads. So they tried to build a pipeline. Rockefeller caught wind of their plan and bought up the land surrounding the pipeline. If they went west, it crossed Rockefeller's property. If they went east, same thing. North, south, everywhere they tried to build a pipeline, they bumped into Rockefeller. Because Standard Oil was so big, so valuable, it could pretty much do whatever it wanted, and then use its power to block out competition, like literally block them out. Rockefeller believed in social Darwinism, that some corporations and people were meant to dominate because of their genetic superiority. To him, his business tactics were simply an expression of the natural order, hardly a godly behavior from a Christian man who taught Sunday school and swept up his church. Mary Lease and others like her saw this behavior as a conspiracy against the little guy. She'd had a hard life. She lost her father, two brothers, and an uncle in the Civil War and viewed slavery as a scourge, one for which she never forgave the South and also never forgave the Democratic Party for defending it. Though she didn't side with Republicans either with their expansion of the federal government, no wonder she helped champion a third party. There was nowhere else for her to go. Yet, it was an exciting time for women as they took to the streets with parades and marches, taking up causes like prohibition and women's suffrage. They battled immense forces. The populist revolt started with a call for regulation of banks and railroads and an end of corporate monopolies like Standard Oil. That may seem like high-minded bluster, but a lot was riding on banks, big business, and railroads. One single railroad going out of business could literally ruin the entire economy. 
as it did in 1873 with the collapse of the corrupt Northern Pacific Railway. The Populist Party, the most successful third party in US history, was about the little guy gaining a voice. And the movement was built by women. Which makes sense. Neither the Democrats nor the Republicans were fully ready to embrace women. Suffragists and populists, with some exceptions, rejected the two major political parties in favor of their own. Despite all their desire for equality, they were committed to exclude anyone born in Africa or Asia. Then, as in now, nobody is perfect. Into the fray came a young man with a booming voice, a guy who delivered speeches to his friends at five years old on the steps of his family home. That's right, William Jennings Bryan. Stepping on a stage is where tens of thousands of people heard him speak against the greed and corruption of his time. He became the Democratic Party's nominee for president in 1896 and the first presidential nominee to campaign on behalf of the poor. The Democrats really were the first mass political party. It was a party which had become the majority party in America before the Civil War by putting together a coalition of Southern slave owners, as well as yeoman farmers from the South who didn't have uh, slaves uh, usually, and a lot of immigrants, especially from uh, Catholic countries like Ireland and Southern Germany. By the late 19th century, it, of course, was the party which was, was split over whether to support the Union during the war. And Southern Democrats, most of them, of course, left the Union and fought for the Confederacy. And, uh, and still, after the Civil War, the base of the, of the Democratic Party was still Southern Democrats. That's the only part of the country that in presidential elections, the Democrats could depend on winning. And they could depend on winning because Democrats were a pretty explicitly racist party back then. After the Civil War, it was the Democrats who championed Jim Crow and black codes. They made pretty clear that they did not want black people to be able to exercise the right to vote, which they had in the 15th Amendment or other rights as well. At the same time, Democrats were still the party of uh, the urban white working class in places like New York City and uh, Chicago. The urban machines were uh, led by by immigrants uh, often from Ireland, and they had support from from um, urban workers. So it was a, it was a coalition. But one thing that until Bryan, until the 1890s, Democrats agreed on was that central government in Washington should not be very strong; should be pretty weak because they felt that you know big business elite figures would always control that central government. So they didn't want the central government to be very strong. Bryan began to change that, and not everyone liked it. During his campaign, the New York Times labeled Bryan with some pretty hard language calling him irresponsible, unregulated, ignorant, prejudiced, pathetically honest, and enthusiastic crank. Those who didn't like him? People in big business. After his wild reception at the DNC in 1896, the New York Times ran this headline. The silver fanatics are invincible, wild, raging, irresistible mob which nothing can turn for its abominable foolishness. So why was big business so anti-Brian? Well, one plank of his platform was expanding U.S. currency to include silver, essentially devaluing the metals that backed our financial system so that prices on goods would rise and people with loans could repay their debts. I covered this in more detail in the last full episode. This was great for people in debt, and not so great for people who gave loans, like big banks who stood to lose money on the deal. Another plank of his platform was a graduated income tax. 
the U.S. at the time earned most of its money by tariffs. If a ship came into the U.S. carrying steel... Steel here? Get your steel! Or textiles... Oh, that looks fabulous on you! Or any number of things, there was a tax on those imports, which made foreign products more expensive. Defenders of the tariffs, those with ties to big business, said that the practice helped keep American goods competitive. Well, that was one side. People like Brian argued that the burden of this practice fell on poor people. Why not raise funds for the country through a graduated income tax? The more cash you make, the more you pay. Place the burden of funding the country on those who could afford it. Part of Brian's goal was to fuse the Democratic Party, the one that favored white Southerners, with the populist party that favored factory workers and farmers. The white ones, anyhow. The populist party, seeing Brian's popularity and hearing his speeches, thought it best not to run against him. If they did, they would split the vote and the Republicans would win for sure. You can see this kind of calculus today. It's one of the reasons Bernie Sanders didn't run third party against Hillary Clinton in 2016. He didn't want to split the liberal vote, preferring for it to go to one person. So the People's Party didn't run a candidate of their own for the presidency. Instead, they backed Brian. Even Mary Leese gave her endorsement, though grudgingly. William Jennings Bryan got the support of not one, but two political parties. Which sounds like a major coup. And it kind of was. But the other side had some real advantages, too. The side that backed Republican William McKinley. Well, McKinley was the candidate of the establishment. In both parties, really. I mean, many Democrats who would like Grover Cleveland, uh, including leading Democratic newspapers like the Pulitzer chain, the New York World, they, they opposed Brian. They thought Brian was a crazy uh, radical, a popocrat, he was sometimes called, populist plus Democrat. So they basically supported a sort of rump Democratic ticket, or they said, vote for McKinley. Grover Cleveland himself, the incumbent president, did not support Brian, the nominee of his own party. William McKinley and Brian ran two very different campaigns. For one, McKinley had all of the money. Truly, almost all of it. Republicans spent $7 million, while Democrats spent just 300000 In other words, the Democrats spent just a little more than 4% of what the Republicans did. Rockefeller himself donated a quarter of a million dollars to McKinley. You can guess why. If Brian and the populists were in charge, Standard Oil was in trouble. So they used their financial might to back his opponent. McKinley ran his campaign from the comfort of his front porch in Canton, Ohio. That's right, he stayed home. Talking to the press, giving little speeches, nothing flashy. That's what most candidates at the time did. The logic went something like this. When you're a presidential nominee, you're supposed to follow George Washington's example. George Washington, uh, after the U.S. was founded and won the Revolutionary War, he wanted to go back to his plow. He wanted to go back to 
you know, his estate in Virginia on the Potomac, but then he was called to lead the country. For the presidency, the office was supposed to seek the man. The man wasn't supposed to seek the office, though everyone knew <laughs> that that was kind of a fiction by the late 19th century. Nevertheless, the idea was, unless you were desperate or you had some special reason why you had to go out and campaign around the country for office, if you run for president, you're supposed to you know, sort of have your surrogates run, run, do the do the speaking for you. McKinley couldn't match Brian's oratory skills, so he hired 1,400 people to tour the country for him, giving lectures and trying to put down any populist sentiment. To a large degree, Brian did his own legwork. So Brian, out of necessity, also had to go around the country speaking because most of the big newspapers were against Brian. So he was the first major party politician to spend the whole campaign going around the country campaigning for himself. There are examples of others who did short stints of touring, but Brian went whole hog. Without the endorsement of major newspapers, it was up to his campaign to get the word out when the media wouldn't. Brian did it because he loved it, but also because he felt he had to. And then that begins a tradition, really, of uh, after that, pretty much every, not all, but pretty much every Democratic and Republican Uh, And third party candidate for president does do what Brian did. Spoiler alert, Brian did not win the election of 1896. With that much money against him, there probably wasn't any way he was going to succeed. While he had small-time businesses and white Southerners on his side, he did not have the votes in high-density cities. The Republicans were the party of a high tariff, which meant that there were higher prices on steel and farm equipment and uh, other industrial goods because there was a high tariff on imported industrial goods, uh, most of them. And so uh, it was the Democrats were the party of, of the small farm and small business person. And so they wanted tariffs to be lower. And so workers in the steel mills and other big uh, manufacturing industries tended to vote Republican because their jobs dependent on the steel industry in America uh, being prosperous. And the steel industry would not have been as prosperous if the tariff on imported steel was not high. So Brian lost the big industrial states, uh, Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, Pennsylvania, New York, and those were where the most people lived in the country at the time. So proportionally. So that's why he lost. Brian may have lost, but he achieved an awful lot in the process. Perhaps you can see the shift that the Democrats made, right? With the need to acquiesce to the populist party platform, the Democrats moved a bit to the left. Brian didn't sit still after his loss. A torrent of letters came in from all over the United States, much like the one we started the show with, where people expressed their undying love and affection for him. This is where I think things take an interesting turn. Brian wasn't just a politician to these people. They framed him as a godly hero. Which, again, was where Brian intersected with the social gospel. When he ran for president in 1896, and after that too, and a little bit before, when he was uh, running for Congress, he would get these astonishing letters, I think, astonishing given the kind of um, cynicism people have about politicians today. People saying, you're a prophet, you know, you're like Jeremiah, Joshua, other prophets, you're, you're a figure clearly is called upon by God to, to be to be the president. Uh, without you, we are lost. With you, we believe that our salvation will come soon. They were using, you know, biblical metaphors all the time. He got more mail than any politician who was not president. Really, the letters are amazing. People saw corruption, corporate greed, and the economic panics around them and sought out the anti-elitist. 
uh, it's fair to say he stoked he stoked that that belief because he did speak a very uh, you know dichotomous uh, rhetoric. You know, he did say the other side was were full of evil forces and his side was full of uh, virtuous ones. And I think a lot of that devoted following was because he was seen as a man of God. Brian lost, but many of his supporters decided to follow their hero no matter what. The populist movement grew into a serious contender for the highest office in the country. What could they do with four more years of planning? And how did all this lay the foundation for Christian fundamentalism? We'll talk about that when we return. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. With letters flooding in, Brian and his team saw an opportunity. The big media outlets didn't like him. Again, the major newspapers were largely funded by big business interests. So Brian and his team came up with an ingenious plan. He certainly had his own following. In fact, he had his own newspaper, his own magazine, uh, which was pretty popular. Which was called The Commoner. It launched in 1901 after his second loss to McKinley, growing from a circulation of 18,000 to 145,000 in 1905. The magazine had one of the largest readerships of any weekly publication in that era. Sticking with his godly image, the magazine refused ads from large corporations and liquor and tobacco interests. The staff had union wages, many women worked at it, and they adhered to the popular call for an eight-hour workday. That's not all, not even close. The Bryan organization was always busy with something. He printed a book of his speeches, which was one of the top sellers of that year at over 200,000 copies. Then there was the famous card catalog, started a year after his first run for the presidency. They collected all kinds of data from people who wrote in. Name. John Richardson. Religion. Christian. Their income, job, and party affiliation. They leveraged the catalog with regular mailings. Hello from William Jennings Bryan. 200,000 people were on the list for the commoner the year after the first election and half a million by 1912. Half a million people through snail mail. They had their own media machine a long time before computers. I'm trying to press into your brain just how big this thing was. Even after his first failed campaign, people all over the country kept meeting to champion bimetallism in halls and churches. Now, don't think that sounds big? An 11-year-old boy from Michigan wrote to Brian saying, We meet every Saturday in our little hall. Your noble face graces the room. Our mottos are, Brian is our king, free silver is the thing, and true to our country. Brian's photo was hung carefully next to that of Washington and Lincoln all across the country. This letter from the little boy was hardly unique. He received a torrent of mail. 
unfortunately, little of which survives today. But what does survive speaks to his vast popularity, which he continued to cultivate. Starting in 1904, after two failed presidential runs, Brian began speaking on the famous Chautauqua circuit. This uh, tenth circuit, uh, speaking around the country uh, in between the times when he's run for president. And he made a lot of money that way. And it was a f popular way for people in small towns, especially in rural areas, uh, sometimes cities too, to, to hear popular speakers they'd read about. The Chautauqua movement began in 1874 on the shores of Lake Chautauqua in upstate New York. Founded by a Methodist minister and a manufacturer, the goal was to imbue American Protestantism with genteel culture and current theology. They featured largely secular lecturers, but also Christian ones. Movies, plays, operas, and magic acts. As long as it was clean, he was at Chautauqua. Even known atheists like celebrity lawyer and Brian's future opponent at the Scopes trial, Clarence Darrow, spoke at these. There, was, there were a lot of politicians uh, who went on the Chautauqua circuit, and they made good money doing it. Brian was able to make as much as $500 per talk, which then was a lot of money. He often did two talks a day, garnering about $2,000 a week. That's about the same purchasing power as $64,000 in today's money. Can you imagine that? $64,000 a week? People read about Brian in the papers, they recited the speeches in his books, they received his magazines and his mailers. Then they saw him in person. Wherever he went, crowds gathered, waving flags, tolling church bells, and blowing factory whistles. Okay, so this is all very interesting and cute, but what does this have to do with fundamentalism in the United States? Yes, William Jennings Bryan was a big deal. We get it. He was everywhere you looked and beloved by a lot of people, and also feared by a lot of people. Okay, so think about it. The building blocks of fundamentalism are right there in front of you. If the mainstream media outlets won't cover you, start something of your own. Use the mail, use technology, get your own voice out there. Christianity was still in the public eye in this age, but that would start to change soon enough. And popular speakers like Brian and William Bell Riley would soon turn the tide from talking about the betterment of society to a focus on protecting the ideal society of the past and fending off those who were seen as persecutors, real or imagined. Then there was the budding sense that the game is fixed and you're not in on it. Premillennialism and dispensationalism were becoming more popular in the United States as conference speakers touted the merits of both, especially at D.L. Moody's conferences. We'll talk about that soon. With them came the growing suspicion that history is trending downward. But recessions, corrupt political deals, predatory banking practices, elections like that of Rutherford B. Hayes that undid much of what the Civil War hoped to fix, and monopolies like Standard Oil left the world on unsteady ground. Then there's that tendency towards populism. There's often a touch of populism in fundamentalism. Seeking out a strongman figure who promises that our people are under attack and only I can save you. Don't miss this. Fundamentalism does not happen in a vacuum. Some histories of fundamentalism leave out the events surrounding the birth of the movement. I think that is a mistake. Movements, even religious ones, don't come out of nowhere. 
they're often the result of external forces. The same is true for populism and fundamentalism in our day. If you're struggling to understand why your loved ones follow a populist leader like Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump, it may help you to consider the social circumstances that got them there. Why do they feel left out, ignored, like the game is stacked against them? Understanding those things could give you some compassion for your friends and family. For those of us who feel frustrated by the populist desire, by the drive to simplify complex issues, to blame those people for our miseries, let's you and I go back to the letter from the beginning of the show, when a poor man wrote to William Jennings Bryan on funeral home stationery because he couldn't afford his own. He included a Bible verse that I think is appropriate. It comes from Psalm 37.1.8. We'll close on this. Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. For, like the grass, they soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. Special thanks to Michael Kazin, author of A Godly Hero and the new book, What It Took to Win, which is a history of the Democratic Party. He's a history professor at Georgetown University. I'll include a full list of sources on the website, but I'd like to give a shout out to Jill Lepore's excellent survey of U.S. history, These Truths. I'll also include some fun links to the Library of Congress's collection of fascinating items from the McKinley-Bryan campaigns at truthpodcast.com. Once you're there, you can learn all about how to help the show. I do this project literally in between my full-time job and all of my personal commitments from performing in an improv troupe to small group Bible studies and personal ministry. My goal is to do this show full-time. That would mean bigger, better episodes, more frequent releases, and I could maybe sleep a little better at night. It would be a huge blessing. If everyone who listened gave just $5 a month, I could do it no problem. Learn how at trucepodcast.com slash donate. If you do it via Patreon, you'll also gain access to bonus materials not heard anywhere else. And if you've got Venmo, you can find me right now at at trucepodcast. You can email me your comments at trucepodcast at yahoo.com. I'd like to hear if you are a populist or how you've seen populism in your own life. Special thanks to everyone who gave me their voice for this episode. My brother Nick Starin, Paul Hastings of the Compelled Podcast, and Michelle Watson from the Pantry Podcast. God willing, in our next episode, we'll explore the creation of social Darwinism and how that mentality led to the Spanish-American War. It's a great episode. I think you're really going to like it. Subscribe to the show so you get every new episode as it's released. God willing, we'll talk again soon. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.